Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this today. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. So welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. The podcast episode is supported by Avanos, and today we're going to be having a closer look at the NDIS, which is the Australian National Disability Insurance Scheme, and we're going to take a bit of time to explore the types of people that utilise this service, uh, some of the common issues that they may experience, and as dietitians, how we can interact with the NDIS to get the best possible outcomes for our clients. To help guide us through the topic. I'm joined by Chanel Bailey, who is an accredited practicing dietitian with over 12 years of experience in clinical dietetics and is currently specializing in the area of progressive neurological diseases, predominantly motor neuron disease at Northern Health in Victoria. She was part of the rollout of the NDIS in her current hospital catchment and has been servicing clients receiving home enteral nutrition support um, and or registered with the NDIS for the past six years. So it's really well placed to, to help talk us through some of these com- common issues. So welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast, Chanel. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jane, and thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your briefly career journey so far and how you've come into this role that you have at the moment? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, as you've mentioned, I've been a clinical dietitian at one of Melbourne's metropolitan hospitals for, yeah, going on 13 years now. I started off bouncing between subacute and acute inpatient services. And as you mentioned, over the last six years, I've been working as a senior dietitian in our hospital without walls division. During this time, I guess my main focus has been around the management of individuals with motor neuron disease who attend our clinic. I'm also credentialed in gastrostomy management and provide a clinic once a week to facilitate our clients' gastrostomy changes. Um, In terms of my journey with the NDIS, our health service is located in the northeast metropolitan area of Victoria, which was actually one of the first rollout areas of the NDIS post the trial stage. So it was around July 2016, I believe, when we became a registered NDIS provider. Uh, I guess before this, my clients were seen under home and community care services. So like a lot of community services at the time, there were major changes that need to be made to not only how we operated as a service, but also how I practiced as a clinician um, with those changes in the funding bodies. Um, Until recently, our focus has been on multidisciplinary care for adult participants with chronic or progressive neurological conditions. However, our speech pathologist and dietetics department have recently expanded to include pediatric um, NDIS participants, which has been a a great addition uh, to the health service. So just 
Going back to one thing you mentioned, a hospital without mm. walls. Um, mm. I've never heard that term before. Is that a new? It's a relatively new yeah. term. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it encompasses a few different services. So disability, uh, NDIS, but also a lot of our aged care and rehab community services as well. So, um, you know, uh, Chisip services, Hack PYP. Every acronym you can think of. (laughs) Every acronym, hospital acronym that you can think of when it encompasses community services. um, That's usually what it's, yeah, what's all falling into. So mentioned obviously it's a big neurological um, service. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the sorts of NDIS um, clients that you see and and some of the main reasons they actually present to a dietitian? Mm, absolutely. Um, like as I mentioned, it, it it is a multidisciplinary clinic, and you know I provide nutritional support to people predominantly with motor neuron disease. We do see other progressive neurological diseases, but the majority are those who present with motor neuron disease. Um, and we're actually one of three clinics of its kind um, in Victoria. So we know that. With motor neuron disease, you know, we're talking about nerve cells that undergo degeneration. So particularly those that control the muscles that enable us to move, to speak, to breathe and to swallow. And because of this, um, you know, the effect on swallow, a large portion of my clients will be recommended enteral nutrition at some point throughout Mm -hmm. their diagnosis. So I guess my role really involves a lot of education and training pre and post gastrostomy and supporting the oral and enteral feeding needs of my clients. I guess people who present to our clinic have either been newly diagnosed with MND or are diagnosed in our clinic. And because of this, the majority are not yet linked in with the NDIS, let alone do they know much about the NDIS and how it works. So it is usually within these first initial meetings that the NDIS is discussed and introduced and access paperwork commenced, you know, by the treating team or or, or the client supporting team as well. So do the clients get referred in, like if they get Mm. a diagnosis, not necessarily within Northern Health, can they be referred into that service? Absolutely. So we accept referrals from usually a, a client will see perhaps a private neurologist or a neurologist from another healthcare service, and then they are then subsequently referred to our um, our clinic for either confirmation of that diagnosis or if, if it, the diagnosis has been confirmed for ongoing management. And would you usually get to see these clients for quite some period of time leading up to the decision around um, a gastrostomy feed? Because I know that, you know, often we Mm. see in oncology or something, some of those conditions, the dietitians often are called in really late in the process and don't necessarily Mm. get to know those clients and suddenly it's, bam, we're on enteral feeding. Do you generally get a longer time to know them? We do. We're we're very fortunate in that sense. So we, um, as a as a dietetics team, um, we will be introduced to the client on their pretty much on their first clinical visit. So they will see the neurologist as well as, you know, some other specialists, perhaps power care if it's appropriate, our respiratory team, do a lung function test, but they'll also get introduced to the allied health team uh, that will be supporting them. So not only dietetics, but speech pathology, OT and physio, etc. as well. So you'll so, get a bit of a chance um, to sort of screen them for do. issues at that early point. Absolutely. Um, you know, and obviously, depending on the type of MND they've got, you know, some disciplines might be more involved yes. than others, but we're all 
in the background and, you know, liaising quite closely with each other. So then you mentioned getting them sort of registered or introduced to NDIS. Um, mm. Can you tell us how someone is eligible for um, to be an NDIS participant? Yeah, so, well, to be eligible for the NDIS, you do need to meet certain criteria. So you do need to be an Australian citizen or permanent resident. Uh, you also need to live in Australia, have a permanent disability that significantly affects your ability to take part in everyday activity and be under the age of 65 when you first apply to access the NDIS, which I think is an important point to remember mm-hmm. because, you know, sometimes a lot of our clients will straddle the age line and are due to turn 65, which will mean their supports will then come under the age care sector. So we really do try hard to ensure that our clients who do meet eligibility get their ex- access paperwork in prior to turning 65 because once on the NDIS, your participant will receive lifelong supports. Mm. And I don't want to get into a political discussion, but are there big differences between if you're an NDIS participant versus having to go down the aged care funding pathway? Absolutely. Yeah. So not only in, you know, services that you can access, but, um, you know, funding streams as well and and what you can access from a, you know, assistive technology and, you know, funding perspective, wait lists, et cetera. Most of the clients that present... Um, are the majority under 65 or over 65, just anecdotally? Oh, um, we probably get a, a bit of a mix, but mm. I would say the majority would be under yeah. the age of 65. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard when I just read about NDIS and, and there's been a lot of media about it recently with the inquiry into disability, um, lots of different, more acronyms. Um, and lots of different terms. Can you kind of give us a um, NDIS 101 into what some of those mm-hmm. mean? NDIS, NDIA, HEN, LAC. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who doesn't love an acronym? <laughs> I certainly know in the hospital we are constantly trying to get another one over the line. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, a good place to start is NDIS versus NDIA. I sometimes hear them used interchangeably, but they are actually two different things. So National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is essentially the scheme run by the Australian government to provide funds to Australians who are living with a permanent disability. NDIA, or National Disability Insurance Agency, on the other hand, are essentially the ones who manage the NDIS and are responsible for administrating all NDIS funding. The NDIA also provide information, individualised plans, funded supports, and they partner with providers like our service to deliver these NDI supports to participants. Um, LACs or local area coordinators is is another great one to mention um, as their role can often be confused, I find, with the role of an NDI support coordinator. So local area coordinators, um, they work with NDIS participants to link them into the NDIS and other mainstream and community supports. They can assist with, you know, anything from access, plan development and implementation of the plan as well. Um, LACs are paid directly by the NDIS, which I guess is a distinguishing difference between LACs and NDIS support coordinators, who, on the other hand, provide funded supports to participants who get approval for, you know, support coordination in their NDIS plan. 
So there is a line item essentially on um, a participant's plan for these supports. And I guess in terms of their role, you know, they essentially coordinate services from various providers and suppliers. So as an NDIS participant, you don't necessarily Mm. have to have a support coordinator, but all NDIS participants would be linked in with a local area coordinator. Yeah, one or the other. So, yeah, you don't have to have a support coordinator, um, let alone, and you don't have to have a local area coordinator as well. They're all just supports there that a participant can access to help them um, through that journey. But essentially, yes, support coordinators, there is a line item. You need to actually have that on your plan, whereas LACs you can access, um, you know, in, in your local community. Um, I know you also mentioned HEN there, so, um, you know, which a lot of dietitians will know as home entry nutrition. And as the name suggests, it's, you know, entry nutrition, you know, the administrating administration of nutritional complete formulas directly into the gastrointestinal tract. And this is provided in the participant home. Um, you know, so, I guess we are often referring to the feeds, but also the feeding equipment needed to provide enteral nutrition in the participant home. But that's really just a dietetic acronym, isn't it? It doesn't have any real meaning in the world of NDIS or even, I mean, even within st- mm. across states, it has kind of different meanings in different Australia. Meanings. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the NDIS do use the word hen, so you do see hen oh, okay. in plants, but I, I guess, yes, I mean, that's probably largely dietetics <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so, so when you're working with an NDIS participant, you know, what are some of the common issues that you come across? Mm. I guess the most common challenge I face working with the NDIS is the underestimation of clinical hours, consumables and supports. Uh, early on in the NDIS rollout, we felt that the service design was really set up for slow changing levels of disability, not rapidly mm. progressing ones like MND. And although we have seen improvements, you know, from those early days, delays in urgent plan reviews can still be a challenge and a real struggle to meet the complex and rapidly changing needs of some of our participants. I guess, um, you know, running out of budget happens for so many reasons, you know, some elements within our control and, and, and a lot that aren't, you know, things like unexpected changes in function is not something you can predict. Mm. So that will impact budget and can cause delays in plan reviews. But I guess there are elements that we as clinicians can do to help with appropriate budget allocation. And two that I'll probably mention is one, projecting needs when possible, and two, having enough supporting evidence to justify your requested budget. And are you looking at a budget for six months, 12 months? What do you have to try and project? Yeah, so, I mean, majority of plans will be for about a 12-month um, you know, there are 12-month plans. Some can be shortest and a lot, some of them can be longer as well, depending on how rapidly progressing, I guess, the disability is. Um, So it is quite a, a, quite a long timeframe that you are trying to project. And I guess essentially if, 
from my point of view, if I poorly project the participants' needs and underestimate budget, I will not only put myself in a bit Mm. of strife, but my client as well. So it means that I guess as clinicians, not only do we need to have a really good understanding of disease progression or changes in disability that are likely to occur, but we also need to ensure we provide evidence in our supporting documentation to support our requested budget. And those hours that you've come up with, sorry, is that sort of, have you developed that with experience? Because most of us as dietitians, really, it would just be a complete stab in the dark thinking about how many hours someone would need over the next 12 Mm. months. Absolutely. I think we're we're slowly, slowly finessing this as we go. Um, You know, I think, you know, when we first started off, you know, it, it it can be quite challenging to predict how many um, hours you will need as a clinician. And probably the best example I can probably give is, you know, you need to, like I said, understand, you know, the disease progression, you need to understand the disability and what it's likely going to look like in 12 months time, in 24 months time. And I guess in my workload, I know that people with bulbar onset MND, so the phenotype that largely affects the individual's ability to swallow, will likely require enteral nutrition. So I know I need to be thinking about feeds, replacement feeding tubes, syringes, the time spent with training and so on. But I also know that the majority will maintain relatively okay upper limb strength and dexterity. So for the most part, they're able to complete self-feeding. On the other hand, for an entrally fed lumbar onset or flail limb phenotype whose ability to self-feed may be compromised, they will also likely need carers to assist with feeding or perhaps a pump or some kind of assistive equipment uh, to help them with their feeding. So I'm now adding on pump costs, IV poles, NDIS-funded carers, training for those carers and so on. So again, being able to understand those future needs are are very, very important. Yeah, you can see why it's a bit intimidating for someone who might be new to this um, process (laughs) in terms of the dietitian trying to do that prediction um, is is really, can be really challenging. And And confronting as well. Mm. Um, And that's probably the other thing I would probably want to mention because, you know, projecting needs, like I said, it's not only confronting to the participant, but for the clinician as well. And it's so important to be sensitive sensitive around this. After all, you may not have ever talked about a feeding tube before, yet now you need to, you know, project the possibility of this in, you know, a participant's supporting documents or planning meetings. And I know I often say to my participants, are we painting a pretty bleak picture as I need to ensure that if we need this, we have the budget allocated for it? Because I know based on this disability in eight months, in nine months' time, we may need to look at this as an option. So it's important to remember, you know, that more of, more likely than not, when you need something, you actually need it now. Um, and are there any ramifications know, so, for mm, overestimating the budget? Like, you know, if you um, say that they need this, I mean, I guess if they don't spend it, it's not like, you know, sometimes next year's budget gets cut because you don't spend it. Is there any of that sort of risk? Um, I guess, I mean, I would always say I would be running that risk to to leave a bit of a buffer because more often than not, you will probably find yourself running out rather than not yeah. using, yeah, than not using it. If you don't use the budget, um, I mean, most often than not, 
you don't, um, you know, the, the way the budget is allocated in a patient's plan, it's not, you know, they kind of can get lumped together. So if it doesn't use it in one area, it can right, normally get okay. absorbed in a different area. So as dietitians, we're putting a budget in for consumables, but, you know, that, that um, you know, core support where, you know, where consumables sit, that, that can be used in so many different places as well. And this is where you can also get yourself in a bit of strife where other people might be taking a bit of your budget as well and yeah. things need to be reshuffled based on the client's goals. And do you need um, to actually get the quotes for that equipment you mentioned having to, right okay so you need to put Absolutely. in the costings of all of that correct so you know like i said i think as clinicians we really do need to think about all the individual's equipment needs and yes absolutely be getting quotes for all of these things so you need to be thinking about you know um feeding tubes you know if they have a feeding tube syringes giving sets you need to think about you know the tube replacements um, itself. So, for example, when thinking about the number of tubes a client will need, as a starting point, I like to look at what the company's recommendations are in terms of how long their tubes typically last. But I also think about my client and what their individual situation is. You know, I take into account how well the individual looks after their device, um, any underlying conditions or medications that may shorten the lifespan of their tube. Um so all those things need to be taken in account of when you're, you know, when you're putting your budget together. You also need to think about, you know, if your participant has a low profile tube like a Mickey, you know, they will need extension sets, yes. you know, and ideally the recommendations are for those to be changed every two weeks. So you need to be including five to six boxes, 25 to 30 sets in your supporting documents. So I'm sure you can see how projecting mm. all equipment needs can become, you know, so important. Yeah. In the on top plan. of, as you say, the training needs, the support workers' needs, your hours, um, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So, yeah. so for we've we've covered a few of them, but if we have a dietitian who's listening, thinking, oh, this just sounds huge. Um, mm -hmm. If they're new to this space, what are sort of the key things that you would suggest that they need to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess first and foremost, I would say that you need to get the language right in your documentation. Where you would previously refer to individuals as patients, you are now referring to them as participants. Where you would previously have written a goal of, you know, meeting 100% of energy and protein requirements to meet, uh, you know, to maintain weight at 60 kilos, you would now be rephrasing that to be, you know, to maintain a healthy weight to enable participation in community activities and therapy. So there is a difference there. Um, fortunately, there are plenty of resources out there, including a document. Uh, Summer Foundation titled Getting the Language Right, which um, I find is a great resource to start with and I would um, highly recommend. Um, I guess you also need to be aware of what interventions are fundable and those that aren't. NDIS report writing, assessments, ordering emails um, to participants, etc., are all fundable, but writing your progress notes on your system are not. I would also say having an understanding of what other providers you may be recommending can fund is also quite handy, um, not essential, but handy. So, you know, for example, a number of meal delivery services will require a 25, 30% co-payment co for participants for meals. So NDIS will only cover the remaining 70 to 75% of the cost, including associated delivery fees. 
which is a you know a handy thing to take into consideration when you're you know putting your plans together. And so I'm just thinking about those um, something for example like the meal delivery services or any mm. of the services really. Do they have to come from NDIS registered providers? Yes. Yeah, I would say most of them do. Um, I'm just trying to think, I mean, if having said that, I guess it really depends on how the client's plan is managed. If the client's plan is, you know, managed, um, self-managed or plan managed, um, when I talk about plan managed, we're talking about plans where there's a provider who supports the participant to manage their plan. In those cases, um, you know, you can be using um, providers that are not NDIS registered. So I guess the best example I can come up with as well is if you're recommending oral nutrition support um, and your client is NDIA managed, you need to go through a registered distributor like Independence yep. Australia or Bright Sky versus if your client is self-managed where you can go directly through companies themselves, for example, right. Nutrition, okay. Nestle, Abbott, FK. Yep. Um, so there is that's another good um, thing to, to uh, for a new clinician mm. in this space to be aware of. So who you engage with depends on how the plan is managed. Right. The only other thing I probably would mention if you are new, again, um, is to consider um, travel. So travel is another one, another good one to mention, which is fundable. And depending on where your client is located and which zone they fall into, um, you know, will depend on how much you can claim. And I would encourage everyone to refer to the updated NDS pricing guidelines for, you know, the the clear definition of, of what that's going to look like um, based on your clients. I guess for a lot of health services, this has been a real game changer. You know, being able to complete home visits has yes. allowed for more patient-centered care where we can provide interventions right in someone's home environment, which I'm sure we can all agree. You can learn so mm. much more know about their situation while you're welcomed into their home. And are there any um, services or things associated with food and nutrition that you've tried to get across the line that have been unsuccessful in getting funding? Um, are there any things that are not like is cooking lessons or I don't know, but I'm just thinking mm. are there any things that are a little bit peripheral um, that you've been or the, the participants been knocked back in getting funding? Um, I guess where we have been knocked back in the past um, has largely probably been been the way we've justified it yes. in our okay. plans and and the supporting evidence around it. Again, if you don't have the right supporting evidence to justify these needs, um, that's where I think you're going to get into a bit of strife. And when you do um, the I think, report, mm, so about the supporting evidence, mm, are there templates or do you just write a letter or, you know, is there any sort of format associated with the supporting evidence documentation that you provide? Certainly for us, um, you know, uh, that's part of, you know, one of the local processes I guess we've it's tried to develop place. over the time. Yeah. Um I'm actually quite unclear on how many versions we've actually gone through um, up to date, but certainly each time I think we've gotten better and better in understanding the best format for planners to understand. Um, So certainly, absolutely, we do have templates um, and we have, like I said, finessed this over time and just really getting a good understanding of what they're looking for um, and how best we can um, 
yeah, justify those needs, yeah, I yeah. guess. So over the time that you've been working on, which is pretty much since its inception, um, the NBIS, mm-hmm. um, have you seen a lot of changes in in the rollout of, of the program? Yeah, immensely. Um, like I've mentioned, from our local processes, you know, our support letter templates, but also our service agreements as well. So again, with each new version, we're attempting to simplify yet ensure it is clear to participants what we will be charging for and what we won't. Um, I guess, you know, very importantly, the changes to the NDIS itself, um, you know, on the 1st of October, uh, it was at 2019, there was a huge change in the sector with the agreement of the NDIS to fund disability-related health supports. And for dietetics and a lot of other halide health at the time, this was a game changer and ensured that oral and enteral nutrition supports and equipment would be funded under the individual's consumable budget, which was huge at the time. And uh, and I think a great relief um, to a lot of allied health services. And prior to that, there was no funding or just it was food or what was it considered as? Yeah, so that that was considered, um, so in terms of oral nutrition support and equipment, it was either funded by the patient themselves um, or uh, those who were still eligible for um, hospital HEN funding, um, the state, you know, funding bodies would support them. So, and is that because it was considered like that's just food? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that that is amazing. It was, yeah huge game changer um but like i said not only you know dietetics there was there was a lot that was added at that time yeah. um so you know including wound management yeah. thickened fluids etc yeah, yeah. Mm. so for uh new people to this area when you talk about that supporting documentation some of the key things you mentioned is getting the language right so talking about the the way it helps their life Um, quality, I guess, and putting everything that you're trying to do in terms of quality of life rather than nutrient outcomes. Mm. Um, Talking about participants um, and having good rationale for why they need the sorts of things that you're recommending. Absolutely. It also needs to be you need to also justify that it's necessary and that it's reasonable. Mm. You're not, you know, quoting the most expensive, most elaborate equipment just because it looks pretty or, you know, yeah. just because it's, you know, what the client wants. You know, you do need to be reasonable in, in your requests as well. Um, you know, if you're if you're um, requesting NDIS carers to provide um, you know, support with feeding, again, it needs to be reasonable um, in terms of your requests around that. And you need to really be able to justify those needs. And for, for again, for, for dietitians who are working in this area and still finding their way, um, you mentioned um, the resource about getting the language right. Are there other places that dietitians can turn to for support in, in supporting their clients in NDIS? Yeah, I mean, I would say if dietitians need support regarding consumables, so feeds, supplements, equipment, I guess the best place to start is going directly to the companies. They all have representatives who are contactable and can work with providers to provide guidance on their products, provide quotes to assist with supporting documents. So I would encourage you to reach out to them. Another good source for support are NDI support coordinators if your client has one or their local area coordinator. 
They can assist in understanding the individual's budget. So we know that some can be confusing and a bit unclear. Um, they can also assist in understanding their support needs and coordinating providers as well. Um, I would also say your local health service networks can be a great support. I certainly know when we were starting up, we were constantly benchmarking across other health and community services and reaching out to colleagues when we could. Um, and of course, you know, the NDIS website also have some great resources, you know, you can refer to. The Summer Foundation also provide training and resources for NDIS professionals, and certainly our organisation has reached out to them for training of staff on a number of occasions, which they've been able to facilitate. So we'll put some links to those um, resources in our show notes for this podcast. Just thinking about um, that sort of going across different health services, do you have uh, clients that are referred in maybe from rural areas that that you need to refer on to someone more locally in terms of dietetic support um, or do they pretty mm. much, once they become um, in your um, health system, do they stay there? I'm just thinking about communication with other dietitians outside of Northern Health. Yeah, I mean, certainly for our service, as I mentioned, we're one of three main uh, multidisciplinary MND clinics. So we service, you know, quite a, a large area um, or ge mm. geographic area of Victoria. So in terms of what, um, how we have gotten around this a lot of the time is that sometimes for some NDIS participants, we have requested budget for two dietitians. So for us to provide the specialist M&D supports, but we also engage with local providers or local dietitians that are local to the, to the mm. client's area. Um, obviously a lot of our individuals have to travel great distances so we can't always be the you know we can't always eyeball the tube we can't yes. always you know troubleshoot through some of these issues so we do work closely with a lot of community local community services to assist in providing you know that coordinated um, care yeah. for the client. I think you've given us some Great insights and helpful for me. I'm learning um, a lot about this and it's gradually becoming clearer. But um, just to, to sum up, what would be sort of your final tips for dietitians who are working with NDIS participants? I would say definitely don't undersell hours and consumables. Um, as I've already mentioned, you will only do the client a disservice. So always leave a buffer when able. Um, for example, you know, to, you need to allow for perhaps out of stock issues. You may need to change to a more expensive feed if, if something's no longer available. So again, don't undersell um, and leave a buffer when able. Think big picture. So most plans, as I mentioned, are for 12 to 24 months. So you need to think about all their current and likely future needs. I would also say don't forget to think about other supports the individual might need. Um, so funds for NDIS carers to deliver feeds, nurses for wound management. And as I mentioned, do you need to think about a budget for two dietitians, you know, one to provide the specialist support and the other to provide some more local supports for the individual. I would also say, um, just on a final note, be very transparent about what you will be charging and billing for. If you complete orders on behalf of your clients, 
be clear about this. Be clear that emails, phone calls will be billed. And I guess you can come up with an agreement with your client on what's appropriate. So, for example, you know, bundling your emails and billing in 15-minute blocks might be more appropriate. Um, so, just so that there are no surprises, yes. um, I guess, down the line. I would also say with that, um, keep really good documentation. If you are ever, you know, asked about your billing, at least it'll be very clearly documented. I think a lot of individuals not might not have a good understanding of the true cost of healthcare and the time it takes to do certain tasks. So I would say be clear about this and be transparent. You know, for example, to order supplements, you might need to get a quote, liaise with the companies, complete a registration form. You know, if you're going through a distributor, they may require you to complete and coordinate a bill or authorization form. Then you need to order. Then you need to troubleshoot through any out-of-stock issues. So all of this takes time and it does add up. So I would just say be very clear yeah. about it this. It's always such a trip, isn't it, to underestimate time. I think we all do it just with everything. You just think, oh, that will be a few minutes and then that takes another few minutes, another few minutes, another form, another form. Yeah. Absolutely. You think ordering, oh, yes, 15-minute phone call or 15-minute registration form, but there are actually so many steps in this. Um, and so, like I said, always try and think about everything that you do um, because we do a lot um, and make sure that you're communicating that. Oh, look, Chanel, that's been so helpful. I'm sure anyone um, listening to the podcast who does work in this space or sometimes I think, you know, it's not necessarily a choice but they need to understand it because they're being, you know, they're coming with um, clients are presenting who are NDIS participants and they need to to know the system and understand it. So you've given us some really, really good tips. And as I said, we'll add a link to some of those um, resources that you've mentioned um, and web pages in our show notes. And we'd also like to thank Avanos supporting this podcast today. So Chanel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.